This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began Self Work six years ago in order to reach those of you who may already be very interested in psychological and emotional issues, maybe you're in therapy, to those of you who are looking for some answers and a mental health podcast or a depression podcast is just what you're looking for, but also to those of you who might be a little skeptical about this whole mental health thing or therapy in general. And I started self-work in order to try to educate people about what therapy really is. Now, this isn't therapy, but at least you'll be able to hear how a psychologist thinks about things and talks about things. So welcome to all of you. One of my favorite things to do on self-work is to respond to your questions. They're sent in by real listeners, (laughs) and I receive so many of them. Thank you for that and for being so engaged. Today's questions are diverse. The first is a reaction to a recent podcast from 19-year-old podcaster Sadie Sutton, who is explaining her journey with depression and her parents' role in it. This listener wanted to know if I was following up with an interview with her parents. A great question, actually, and a great idea. But no, that's not the plan. But I wanted to respond to some of her thoughts, as that episode touched a sensitive and vulnerable place in her heart. And maybe it did yours as well. The second email is from someone whose partner has been diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder and is looking for some support for herself. She searched the literature and it seems to focus on what she can do for her partner rather than her own growth and healing. And the third is from a listener who's turned to his family for affirmation but keeps getting ignored or even criticized for it. His question is, how to become my own cheerleader? First, we'll hear from BetterHelp, the number one online therapy provider. The most common problem I hear from those seeking therapy is how hard it is to find a therapist, how long it takes, how vulnerable you feel asking around for names, how far you might have to travel to get to their office. BetterHelp solves those problems. After you make the first contact, their standard is to offer names of therapists to you in less than two days. And you can talk to them in a first session to see if it's a good fit. And if so, you're on your way. But if not, rather than going through an awkward call or email, you simply let BetterHelp know and they'll ask what it was you didn't like and find someone else for you. This very caring process takes so much of the responsibility and the vulnerability out of it for you. Now, that doesn't mean you won't feel vulnerable in actual therapy, but the time and difficulty of finding someone is what they handle for you. And of course, since you can text, chat, or talk virtually, then all of those avenues are open to you. Their counselors are licensed professionals, LPCs, psychologists, social workers, men, women. They have different specialties, just like in your community. And they can focus on what you need where you are in your life. The pandemic forced many counselors to work virtually, myself included. But what I learned is that virtual work feels different, but I also found it very helpful and for some people much easier. So here's their offer for self-work listeners. 10% off your first month of sessions if you use this link, betterhelp.com slash self-work. That's betterhelp.com slash self-work. So let's get started with these questions and answers. Self-work's own Q&A.
Here's her email. Good afternoon, Dr. Margaret. I started listening to you almost two years ago, and I've learned so much from you and your podcast. I'm grateful I found them. Welcome, welcome. The episode with your interview with Sadie Sutton has weighed heavily on me since I listened to it. There is certainly some overlap that our family has experienced with our own daughter. I'd be very interested in you having a follow-up interview with her parents. I'm curious what their side of Sadie's stories would look and sound like. Our daughter was a senior in high school when COVID began. Her world, like so many others, was turned upside down. We became aware of how depressed she was during the pandemic. She agreed to counseling and she began working with an outpatient therapist, psychiatrist, and dietitian. I began my own work with the same therapist with the understanding that we would have sessions together at some point. My daughter had a lot of anger against both my husband and me, and it was difficult to understand it. She refused therapy with either of us, and it progressed to the point we discovered she needed intensive therapy for an eating disorder. We found an intensive outpatient therapy program for her, but she continued to refuse family therapy sessions and would make frequent references to my husband and me that she was recovering from her own childhood traumas. I'm still very perplexed by what childhood traumas she had. As parents, we both are first-generation college graduates working in healthcare. And there were times in her childhood that we both worked very long hours during the week, but weekends were all family-focused. Both my husband and I had hard childhoods with alcoholic and abusive parents who were all deceased. We probably went overboard as parents to ensure our daughter didn't have any hardships. So much so, I've discovered that her definition of trauma is very different than mine or my husband's. I tormented myself imagining all the worst-case scenarios for our daughter's trauma. It's been a hard two years coming to terms with, I did the best I could. I don't take much comfort in that phrase. It still causes pain to say that, although I know it's meant to improve self-compassion. She did learn, by the way, that her daughter had not been sexually abused or assaulted. The treatment staff that worked with her were all very young professionals, and I would not refer anyone to that facility. I know in some ways their hands were tied because of my daughter's legal adult status, but I believe they rallied and validated all things that I would consider normal childhood stress memories as trauma. And this listener went on to tell me about a time when she left her daughter at a child care center and there was a staff member dressed up in a costume which disturbed her child. And at a much later time, they had to tell her that going to one school was going to be too expensive and so she felt like that was trauma too. She said, you told me that I could be whoever I want to be. Again, if we try to discuss these, she shuts us down. When our daughter left the IOP treatment center, that's the intensive outpatient, she did not follow through with the outpatient plan. We still feel like we're walking on eggshells around her a lot. And my husband and I are trying to focus on moving forward, improving our work-life balance, and trying to be as supportive as we can with only our side of our family story. Hearing bits and pieces of our daughter's childhood memories or traumas without being able to discuss them with her in any form, it's very hard. My definition of childhood trauma includes physical, emotional, and sexual abuse assault. And my daughter uses the word trauma for things I would never think of as trauma. I love the therapist I'm working with and I'm trying to broaden that definition and to move forward to strengthen my relationship with my daughter that I didn't know was damaged until the pandemic. The interview with Sadie mentioned childhood trauma, and I'm just so very curious how her parents viewed her childhood. I'm also curious if my definition of trauma is so limited or if today's generation is supported in believing life disappointments are trauma. 
First of all, here's my answer. It sounds as if there have been some therapeutic questionable actions here. I doubt if I would have taken on both of you and your teenage daughter as clients at the same time, especially not with an eating disorder that's all about control. Two, often a patient in an inpatient or IOP can refuse family therapy. And that should have been information to the staff, and it needed addressing. Family dynamics can be huge in eating disorders, not in all, but sadly, because she bypassed it, a huge amount of her treatment was ignored or not followed up on. And about the discharge planning, sadly, most programs do a very bad job of this. It's been my experience. Often they have fairly grandiose ways of saying what's available out in the community, and it's really not. But the fact that your daughter didn't seek other mental health services is telling. As far as the issue of Sadie's family, a couple of the things she told me about her father's disbelief and depression seemed oppressive. Your story is very different. You believed her from the very beginning and you got her help. But Sadie also comes from a very wealthy family who could take her wherever she needed to go. And part of their treatment in that program was to involve the entire family. And that expectation existed from the beginning of treatment. So Sadie really didn't have a vote because if she was going to stay in the program, she had to follow their directions. And of course, it was about their attitude of knowing what worked and what didn't. Your daughter's issues with food may have gotten better, but some of the family healing didn't happen. And... That's sad. It sounds as if your therapist is helping you understand that trauma can be on a spectrum, and that's good. Your daughter may have some sensitivity issues of her own or a deeper issue with emotional reactivity. So it's important to understand that what she's calling trauma can be very real for her, but it's not as easy to understand from where you stand. I get it. Is today's generation coddled? There's debate about that. And who's at fault there? Or whose responsibility is that? It's kind of a vicious circle kind of discussion, isn't it? It's better, I think, after hearing a lot of these arguments, to realize that at times it takes time and a child maturing more to have more productive discussions. And the important point is not to take the blame yourself. She actually sounds as if she's doing pretty well. She got derailed, as did a lot of kids. And some that may have had underlying insecurities got hit the most, forced out of the routine of what was normal in their lives. And as you say, the two of you parents were hit very hard yourself. So hopefully time will help. But it does sound like the control of an eating disorder is still something she's struggling with, that she needs control over what's being talked about. You can only respond as much as she'd allow you to. So good for you for hanging in there, but... I agree, it's not your fault that she's not allowing you in. Before we go on to the next email, let's hear from AG1 or Athletic Greens, who I have to thank for helping me through a second round of COVID this week. I felt like I was really helping myself by drinking their product. Our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work, and I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family... I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, 
Its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Here's the second email. Hello, I wanted to thank you for giving so graciously to the listeners of your podcast. I recently discovered self-work and will be ordering your book on perfectly hidden depression. Your thoughtfulness and earnest consideration of listeners' struggles is much appreciated. I'm the wife of someone with borderline and bipolar and coming from not ever hearing a borderline personality disorder to his diagnosis after we were married. I've been through the gamut of confusing emotions for which support is challenging to find. Among the years of searching for support for spouses of borderline, I found only a few books specifically for the emotional well-being of the significant other in these complicated relationships. I'd love to hear your thoughts on maintaining a strong identity in these very challenging marriages. Most information out there seems to be geared toward, quote, helping your borderline spouse, end of quote, and really falls short on acknowledging how easily enmeshment occurs. Not to mention, it sort of encourages codependency and other issues by that mindset of helping them if one isn't careful with boundaries. I know I can't be the only one out there searching for support, but there really is a need for more strong focus therapy for the other spouse in these relationships. The lost and confused spouse easily falls into hidden depression as we try to find some sort of outward appearance of control in what really feels like a chaotic life under the surface that nobody sees. In the meantime, I will enjoy self-work. So, here's my answer. I'm certainly sure that this is a life that many people struggle with, and in fact, have a lot of facts to support that. My blog posts that I've shared the most are the ones about having an emotionally unstable mom or parent and how to handle that. But I've only spoken once about having a partner with these issues. That was in episode 86, which was quite a long time ago. But I will have the link to that in your show notes. But I actually listened to it again myself so I could get what I said back then and if I had any other thoughts about it. In it, I mentioned that most people diagnosed or who experience borderline personality disorder identify as female for some unknown reason. But that's not always the case. Two classic books on this topic are Stop Walking on Eggshells and I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. Both have great boundary setting suggestions. I'm sure you've run into those. And they are for the people who are trying to love folks who, without treatment, their emotions can certainly govern their choices. But you're right. You can fall into a silent depression as the partner. But you also use a very important phrase. You say, you're living a chaotic life that nobody sees. That's the catch. You don't want to enable your partner's borderline issues by not calling them what they are and sometimes allowing them to be seen. As one woman I worked with stated metaphorically to her borderline spouse, who had once again acted very chaotically and destructively, you may say you're sorry about having thrown up on me once again, but I'm still the one who smells like vomit. She was actually learning to recognize her own role in enabling his chaos as she was trying to weave more and more control in the relationship, and he grew more and more angry and blaming. 
Hopefully, your spouse is not doing that. So, let me give you the nine points I made in that episode 86. I still agree with them, but I'll also add one more. Now, they may sound harsh, but they're definitely about the non-borderline partner looking at themselves honestly and setting fair boundaries and then sticking to them. That's the hard part. Number one is to face the fear of your own helplessness because you cannot fix them. No amount of love, no amount of caring. That has to be the work of the person with the issue. And you have to hand responsibility back to them. Number two, because sometimes there's danger and threatening from these people, you need to rationally assess your partner's ability to do you physical and or emotional harm. Get others' input. You may have grown immune to the intensity of the relationship, but that doesn't mean it's not doing damage. What I mean by this is to say there's a lot of fighting, or there's a lot of blaming, or there's a lot of suicidal threatening, or just threatening in general. You know, you can grow more immune when that's your life behind your own doors, and you forget how much of an impact it's having. Number three. Assess damage to others in your family and let that influence your decision to stay in the relationship. Basically, what I mean by this is sometimes a lot of people will tell me, I finally set a boundary and said, you're no longer invited for Christmas or or we need to change your accessibility to the rest of the family because other children were getting hurt, grandparents were getting hurt by the chaos that the borderline person was creating. Again, often not intentionally but because they don't necessarily realize the impact of their actions on others and they struggle with empathy, you have to be careful that you're assessing damage to you and then make decisions accordingly. Again, number four is hand back to them the responsibility for their own life, something I used to do and still do when I may have a borderline patient who will call me in a lot of distress and actually they'll be describing something that they have faced before. And I will remind them, what did you do in this instance before? They're looking to me to help set the structure of what they should do next. And I remind them that they have their own skills and strengths that they have been building in therapy and that they need to use those skills and strengths. Number five is provide empathy, but not sympathy. And this is especially true If they honor, or at least they're trying to honor the boundaries that you've set, for example, remember a mother and daughter, I was working with a daughter, and the mother experienced borderline, and there were certain topics that the daughter decided they could not discuss, because they just led to a lot of just harsh language and memories being pulled up that were very difficult for my patient. And so when the mother would begin discussing those topics, The daughter would say, Mom, I'm going to leave and we're going to go run some errands because you know this is a topic that we cannot talk about. And she'd do that. Mother wouldn't like it, but she would cut off the conversation and then come back having run the errands. But you have to consistently set some boundaries and then stick to them. And when they are following those boundaries, then you can provide empathy for them. Again, I wouldn't wish borderline on my worst enemy. When it's severe, it's a very, very difficult set of dynamics to be experiencing. Number six is grieve the relationship that you thought could exist. This is a lot harder than you imagined. And look for the positives within this one, but with your eyes wide open. Number seven is give them support when they show the capacity to own their impact and when you can see them trying to change that. Number eight 
Get support from others. Al-Anon is a great place to get this because their mantra is to touch with love. Number nine is have compassion for yourself. And then the tenth one is something I didn't mention back now. What, how many years ago? Episode 86 was a long time ago. Look into your own reasons for getting involved with them and own them. Maybe you're a savior, for example. Maybe their very intensity was something you were attracted to. So I think if you're honest with yourself about why you were attracted to this person with these dynamics, you can more look at the way the two of you are interacting with one another and how that may be not good for both of you and something you need to change and own yourself. I hope these are helpful. Here's our third email. I enjoy your podcast so much and never miss an episode. Thank you so much for all that you do and the many life lessons you teach us. You're so welcome. I'm an older person and legally blind with limited vision. I decided to go back to school to earn my BA degree in psychology. I will finally earn this degree by the end of 2023. However, I'm struggling so much to keep up to the demands. There are times when I'm motivated and other times when I'm not. The other problem is that I do not have a positive support system. I've been married for 30 years and have a son who is 31 years of age. When my son was born, I decided to stay home to take care of him while my wife worked to complete her degree. At that time, I wanted so much to continue college, but wanted to support my wife's education first. After she graduated, I went to work as a case manager and helping the homeless population, but I still took one or two classes each year. However, I noticed that my wife doesn't support me in the way that I supported her. Every time I have an achievement and share it with her, I notice and detect some form of jealousy. I remind her that she has a degree that she should be proud of and I'm just working on mine. However, I feel that I'm alone when it comes to furthering my own career. Sometimes this makes me feel less motivated because no one appreciates what I'm doing, including my siblings. I also feel that maybe I'm too old to even complete my BA. I would like to go to graduate school, but I will be 64, 65 years old, so I don't know. I'm also an American Red Cross disaster responder volunteer, and I received citation awards from my local community. When I presented these to my wife, she also was still not impressed or pleased. This makes me feel bad. So here's my answer. It would be pretty presumptuous for me to say that I knew what was causing this listener's family to ignore him or not offer him the affirmations he seems to want and doesn't receive. I can theorize about several things, both within his relationship and perhaps a couple of things he might want to consider. But again, I think that's a little presumptuous. So let's get to the question he's asking. He obviously believes and is living a life of service. And for having a disability, wow, he's really doing quite, quite well. But after this many years, he seems to be chasing something or being continuously hurt that gratitude and praise are not offered, that either his wife and family don't seem to be able to give it, or they're certainly not willing to give it. That maybe because of the way he's approaching them, I don't know. But that can be hard to feel as if you've given more than you're receiving. But basically, if you keep hoping for someone to have the capacity to offer you something and believing they could give it if only they wanted to, means you walk around feeling deprived or victimized or hurt, rather than deciding, you know, it doesn't matter how much I want them to be able to do this, they can't seem to do it. They haven't shown it to me so far. 
And so they're not going to do it and move on rather than continuing to be hurt by it. I've said before, if you're thirsty and you believe someone has water to give you, then you're hurt when they do not say, of course, I'll share my water with you. But if you just believe they have water, then you can stay hurt for really no good reason because they don't have water. So they're not capable of helping you, even though you really want them to help you. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you need to stay in the relationship. If you're that unhappy and they don't know how to give back to you, then perhaps it's not the relationship for you. But if you want to continue in the relationship, then deciding, you know, I still care about them, even though they're not capable of giving this to me and going on and trying to get it from others, maybe your classmates, maybe your teachers or professors, but from another source. And then, of course, my feedback to someone who's worried about how old they will be at the end of reaching a goal. (laughs) Well, this is my sort of common sense answer. I always ask somebody who has this question, so do you hope you get to that age? In his case, it would be 64, 65. And they say, oh, yeah, I hope I get there. And then my answer is, then why not get to that age having accomplished what you set out to accomplish and be proud of that? Rather than saying, oh, I'm too old. A great example of that is I was 61 when I took the training to begin this podcast back in 2016. I can promise you I was the oldest person in the class and had to work hard to understand the ins and outs of podcasting, editing, making audio files, etc., setting up the podcast. But with help, I did it. I quickly found an editor and producer because it was way too hard for me to do it by myself. But that's how I began. So, my advice? No worries about your age. As Nike would say, just do it if it brings you joy and fuels your curiosity and sense of fulfillment. Thanks to all of you who are sending speak pipe messages. Those are voicemails I get. I actually get to hear your voice describing what you want to ask me or comment on. And that's really wonderful. It's fun getting to know y'all in that way. And of course, to everyone who's writing me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, your questions and comments like I featured today. We're coming up on the sixth anniversary of the birth of this podcast. And actually, I'm going to be gone during that period of time. So I'm going to be writing a podcast soon to help fill you in on where we might be going in the future. And I would love to hear from you if you have any ideas about that. It'll be coming out in a couple of weeks. So drop me a line or a speak pipe message and let me know, is there a direction you'd like self-work to go? I love everyone's ideas. You can always join my Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. There's a whole lot of me in my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression. There are 60 exercises that help those of you who may struggle to show your emotions or feel your deeper emotions and how to begin to learn how to do it. That's Perfectly Hidden Depression, and it's wherever you buy books. Give your local bookstore some business. That would be wonderful. And of course, subscribe or follow Self Work wherever you listen. That really helps you keep in touch with me. So again, thanks for being here. Thanks for your questions, your interest, your engagement, and for you being you. I'm honored that you've spent your time with me. Please take very good care of yourself, of others you love, and offer kindness and compassion and empathy to others. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.